you are listening to the empowering indian expats podcast if you are an indian living abroad feeling stuck in an average 9 to 5 or a job or business that's not helping you reach your full potential this is the podcast to tune in where you will find your role models and learn from their dream struggle victory stories this is your host ehsan ali a long time id professional living in sydney australia who has made it his mission to find and unpack the stories strategies and life lessons of successful and inspiring indian expats to help you and i reach our full potential i'm excited to speak to this week's guest jaya vadanathan jaya was listed in the top 10 most influential women in tech and has also been named india's most trustworthy ceo jaya started her career in investment banking at wall street and then moved into tech industry in tech she worked with organizations like hcl and accenture in leadership roles and finally she was a executive vice president at standard chartered bank and then she jumped into entrepreneurship so i'm really keen to know how jaya moved from being a computer graduate to being in senior leadership roles and then transitioning into entrepreneurship it this sounds like an interesting journey so without further ado let's talk to jaya Hi Jaya, welcome to the Empowering Indian Expats podcast. Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh thank you. Thank you Jaya for uh, taking time out to speak to me on this uh, podcast. Which city are you in right now, Jaya? I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. Fantastic. That's your second home and it must be late evening, I guess. Uh it's about 4 p.m. Not too okay. bad. That's that's pretty good. It's uh, 9 a.m. in uh, Sydney right now. Good. We both on good time tracks. Yeah, I think it's it's perfect time. So, Jay, I'm really keen to get your story out. And if I look at your profile, you started just like anybody else, a computer science graduate. But the trajectory of your career has been fantastic. I saw you worked in senior leadership roles in a number of IT companies, mm-hmm. like you were director in HCL. You were a managing partner in Accenture. You were an executive vice president in Standard Chartered Bank. and then last 7 8 years uh, you have been uh, running a business of your own which is an entrepreneurial uh, endeavor so i'm very curious to know how did you create a trajectory of uh, this type so if you could give a brief in your own words starting from a graduate uh, jaya what happened which took you on this trajectory i think i was always kind of interested in learning new things it comes from a background i think largely contributory to my parents nomadic existence i grew up in different cities around the world as a child and uh, like they say the first thing you learn is to go out of your comfort zone and kind of figure out new things to as people say uh, when you learn a new language a second language before the age of 5 you not only learn the language but you learn how to learn languages so to right. me moving from city to city as a child also gave me that exposure of going out of my comfort zone and trying to do something new all the time and i think that was largely contributed uh, to a nomadic existence as i grew up and right. uh, i was always kind of ambitious it was more at a time and space where you know i started as a computer engineering grad but i always knew i wanted to do something different I knew that whether it was engineering I wanted to pursue 
but it was also more to do with what do I do in the world of business from an impact perspective. And mm. to me at that time, given my exposure, MBA seemed to be the best thing to do. And it right. also was a fit in with what I liked best, which is I like people, I like business, I like talking about uh, impact rather than, and working with people more than working with systems. So I think largely contributing to that chemistry of what was comfortable and what I saw myself doing as a passion led me to an MBA. So when it was an MBA, it was a choice which was automatic, which said I wanted to do MBA from an Ivy League school. So it was kind of not, it was a thought out process. I was good with math and numbers as a child. And it logically led me to doing an MBA in finance and strategy. At that time, obviously, I didn't have a lot of money. So it was more the school that gives you a scholarship is the one that I was going to choose. And uh, Cornell was a choice. And uh, I did get into other schools. I'd gotten a perfect GMAT score at that time. Mm. And this was school that uh, gave me funding. And that was very important to me at that time. So there it was, an MBA in finance and strategy. And then I moved on to an investment banking career and parallelly also did my CFA. So the rest is more, you know, something that was logically happening. And you may ask why investment banking? It was not a natural choice. Or at that time, when I'm talking about in the 90s, it was more in terms of not many people choose, uh, chose investment banking. Technology was a logical choice. And right. as a sidestep, even management consulting was a prominent choice. Yes. Investment banking was the toughest to get in as an MBA student. And uh, most of the people at that time that got an entry in were all your classic people who could bring in networks. They had networks. Their parents were uh, kind of in good roles and they had a network in America. They could bring clients in. So there was a lot of conversation about contribution from ground zero. Mm. And it would have, it was the hardest from my perspective because A, I didn't have any network. I knew no people in America. And I was your, not your typical investment banking recruit. But the thought that was the hardest to get in and therefore it was most interesting for me. Second, I was good with numbers and finance and I wanted to be in that world. So a combination of things led to me fighting for that one spot. And Mm. uh, after 10 rounds of interviews, of which informationals, including conversations around Super Bowl and baseball, things that I had no clue of, but I learned for that purpose. And I continue to enjoy the games because I did attend games. I would call uh, guys in my class and ask them, how does this work? How is this (laughs) game? I don't get, understand it. And I would, they would plot place and I would learn and that was a great learning. So it was not just learning the world of finance and math. It was also about learning the cultural nuances of the place because that was more important to a job that demands a lot of people communication in a field right. like investment banking. So those were some of the interesting trajectories, if you will, in terms of my starting of my career. And a lot of the rest of my career was was shaped by requirements both on a personal front as well as from a career front. So I did a lot of um, things that people wouldn't normally do. As in, when you're in investment banking, it's a hard one job. 
It is something that you actually kind of competed against um, a lot of local talent to get in. Right. But then I did choose to have a kid very early in life, which mm. was something people said was a career suicide. Mm. Um, but that was not something that I said I will work alongside it. I didn't give up my career, but I chose to kind of morph my career into roles that would fit work-life balance mm. uh, in a mm. way that can also shape that. So if you think it was completely career-driven, the answer, though it may look like it was shaped well, well thought out, and it was a trajectory that was, you know, you go from investment banking to management consulting, technology, and then entrepreneurship, it wasn't that easy. It was something mm. that was shaped by personal choices and uh, it was also shaped by things that happened in your life. Mm. So mm. I would mm. say kind of like one uh, big curve that takes you exponentially to the top. It wasn't. It is more, I would say, whatever was thrown in the path to kind of say, let me make the best use of it and learn from it and kind of like transform that into something else that will also be suitable was more, I would say, that was, you know, the, what shaped my career. So in the, this short conversation, I picked a few things already, Jaya. So when you talked about Super Bowl and understanding the, the interest of people and being part of the, the culture is extremely important. A lot of people get stuck into the area of expertise and it's like just working with the machines. But uh, if you want to grow in career, you got to be able to deal with people around you in a very, very nice way. And if you don't understand the culture, you're kind of clueless. You, you can't have a good conversation. So I, I picked that up and it's important. A lot of people don't realize until late that it was important. Yeah. Second thing when you said is having a kid is not really a suicide. You have proved it wrong. And that's a message for a lot of uh, uh, women that you know, just because uh, you have to raise a family, you have to sacrifice with career. That's, that's not true. And then when you said make best of the circumstances or the situations that have been thrown to you is important. So I, I get that. But at the same time, it raises a question in my mind. So if I'm working in a company and if I'm growing, I'm doing very well. I still have a linear growth. And if I'm ambitious, I need to think of beyond what I'm doing. And that's when perhaps I make good connections in, 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 in senior positions in different companies and I make a change and so on and so forth. What did you do from being an investment banker, getting into HCL, for example, you were a director and you were working on large deals in the United States and then from there Accenture and all of those things. What was driving you to do all of those? Is it like they all came to you? because you were a performer or it was a combination of you reaching out because you were ambitious. What was going on? I would say it's a question of a, like I said, getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. I was doing really well in investment banking. So it was not a question of, I was actively looking to get out of it. So I would say the first message for me based on hindsight was whatever you do, do it to the best of your capability. Yeah. So that is when doors will open where there were only walls. So I think that it's very, very important to kind of be at the top of your game in whatever circumstances you are. The rest is more a combination of what people would say, luck or being at the right time at the right place. But most important is to put your hands up and be comfortable getting out of your comfort. So for me, what happened personally was I was on the sales side of a deal, uh, which was for uh, Deutsche uh, Software Limited. Mm. 
and I uh, did meet with uh, people from HCL, the senior leadership. It was more like some of the way that the transactions were engaged, especially with the financial side of things and, you know, the operating officer, pretty much everybody was there. They really were, people watch you when you are a performer. And mm -hmm. then it's more a question of, hey, this is very impressive. So why don't we talk it's more about, I think for me, it was also about being, learning a lot of new stuff, which was outside my job profile. Mm. So it's, it's likely that most people get absorbed in your current role. And That's to be right. a performer, you kind of keep doing that over and over again. Right. I think it was more about, for me, learning a lot about technology, going out of the steam, because I was looking at technology, telecom, and financial services as a business. So it was not just about like valuation. It was not about deal dynamics. It was more about getting to the core of what was making that company tick and understanding the component of whether they do have a trajectory or not, which mm. is going to the surface and saying, let me learn a little bit more about it which enabled me to make the transition quickly, which was more, like you said, being in somebody's shoes and then kind of looking at it. Let me explain with an example. When yeah. this just came out, it just came through an opportunity where most people ask, what are other companies investing in? Like an investment banker, you ask the question. So one of the things I was talking about is the fact that the companies, Indian pure play IT companies need to invest a lot on relationship lending which is consultative selling, uh, work on large deals rather than be perceived as an execution shock because they were going to lose that advantage with the Accentures and Capgeminis of the world moving eastward. Yeah. And that question popped up immediately. I was asked the question, why don't you help lead that for us? Right. I could have said, no, I'm very comfortable in investment banking. This is my passion. Or thought that was a new challenging opportunity. This is not something others are doing. So why don't we kind of set that up, right? And it's kind of like going from an established career where you know the trajectory is A, and then kind of saying this trajectory B could be interesting too, and maybe perhaps bigger than A in terms of a trajectory, is the conscious effort of risk reward. So if you're kind of saying, so that's what happened with me. There is no right formula for it but that's what was going on in my mind. And one of the things that happened in the initial meeting, we were um, pitching to Thompson Financials. And uh, like most senior people join, the first time sales executive take you to meet the client, uh, you know, the top clients in the region. And we were uh, pitching as a company for some testing and CRM work. And the CIO said, you know what, guys, come back after a year because I'm struggling with one Thompson Financial integration. And I don't know what I need yet. So you need to come back after, you know, maybe six months, but I would more kind of be comfortable saying a year because it was going to be a five minute conversation. So then I picked up the threads and I was talking about, you know, as a consumer, I hope you kind of merge this product with this and create a new product. That would be really interesting because I've used segment A, I've used segment B, and I've often thought that it would be good to have segment C that includes A and B, which is when it's the optimal use of it. So she paused and looked at me and said, what did you really like about it? So the conversation was going to end in five minutes. It moved on to an hour and a half. And then end of it, she said, I really enjoyed the conversation. So 
why don't you come in as the third vendor? We've already selected two partners. You're going to be the third. It's a paid consulting study for four weeks. And whichever is the best case study, it's going to win. I have no say on that because it's a panel. But I really enjoyed the conversation. And this is what I'm looking forward to. We won the deal. It was a $100 million deal. And that was a big start. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's more about looking at opportunities that go beyond or it's a stretch in terms of something new. And kind of looking at things, I would say, perhaps innovatively or more getting out of your comfort zone, mm -hmm. looking every conversation, not as a transaction, but as a relationship, yeah. uh, whether it's people around you or it's clients or it's employees. I think that has been the biggest success formula. That's very nice. Uh, I think I, I, I can I can clearly understand that. So it's not about every every interaction is a transaction. It's a building relationship and also looking at if I can add value, why don't I talk about it? If I can think, I can talk rather than looking at a transaction to make money, which is what uh, typical salespeople are perceived as. But when you go with a different perspective, the whole uh, energy, the interaction becomes different. And when you talked about this whole example of eventually winning a hundred million deal, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Now, thanks, thanks for sharing that, Jay. And I picked up uh, a couple of things again, you know, one is, of course, go out of your comfort zone. And you said it's a conscious risk and reward decision. Yeah. And I was thinking about it, like, do you really understand when you make this kind of jump uh, sideways or upward, which kind of is scary because you're going to leave something you were doing very well with, you were recognized for. And now you are taking a new step and you know it is a risk. And when you say it's a conscious risk and reward decision, do you really understand at that point in time the reward that comes with that decision? No, you don't. But it's question of, it's a great question and you don't. But it's more about the biggest reward to us is learning something new. Mm. It could be a failure, but you learn from a failure too. It's mm. not that every opportunity is going to translate into a success. But don't you, if you look back at your life, did you not learn more from your failures than your successes? Definitely, you know, always. On a trajectory of all successes, you think I'm a natural at it and therefore uh, this is something that every time I do it, I'm going to be successful. But I think the ultimate humility in a person comes from when you have failures in life and preferably early on where you can kind of change the course of trajectory right. much easier. Right. So you don't understand it, but it looks like an important opportunity. You know, the risks are high, but the rewards could be high because regardless of whether it's a monetary outcome, the fact remains is that you've learned something completely new. Right, right. So how do you... Uh, uh, Jaya, uh, learning is the day you stop living. So That's I very true. The biggest reward for you is the learning process itself. Like they mm. say, it's not the end that always counts, but it's the journey. Mm -hmm. So how do you uh, really look at failure, Jaya? Because a lot of people think if I fail, the there would be an impression in the in the environment that this guy can't do it or this woman can't do it and it can jeopardize the career. Is that true or not true? You know, Based on your really deep and wide experience globally, what do you think? How to really manage failure and if you say take risk and you know fail and that will shape up your career better if that being a true statement how do you really manage the environment not just yourself there are two aspects one how do you manage yourself so you come out of it and then take 
the next step? And second, how do you manage the environment when things don't go very well? I think the biggest learning for me is to not repeat the same mistake again, but <laughs> do a new mistake every time so that you learn that differently. I wouldn't say don't make mistakes again, which is a very dumb statement to make because yeah. as we grow old in hindsight, you can only kind of like say the biggest things you've not walked the hard path unless you've fallen, right? True. So True. I think it's more about not repeating the same mistakes and that becomes the learning. So okay. I'll flip the coin a little bit and talk about how I look at risk and reward and in the people that work, for instance, probably are my direct reports. Mm. I've had salespeople that come and said, you know what, Jaya, this is going to be something that's hard stretch. We are taking a punt on this. This may work, may not work, but I don't know. I'm not really comfortable doing it. And they kind of go through every step. I walk them through it. I say, okay, so you believe this is a risk. Why do you think it's a risk? Let's kind of hedge that and let's kind of talk about what are the outcomes? What's the worst case scenario? And then we map through it and have a conscious learning. And then we kind of say, let's go for it anyway. Mm. At least you would have thought through scenarios. There might be something new that comes, even if you kind of not won the deal, right? But you know, you gave your best try based on assumptions and based on information available to you at that point of time. Mm. But if the information turned out to be different, or if it also happened that the circumstances were different, then it's okay because that's going to be a learning because next time you know that you won't make the same mistake. Mm. So I think I, I would clearly, if you asked my direct reports, they would say it's, they're always encouraged for taking calculated risks. It's not pre-falling risks. Got it. So it's more about thinking through the scenario and making it and also looking at it in terms of documentation and say, here is what I thought through and here are the assumptions I've made. Based on this, I'm taking this decision. Yeah, makes sense. I think yeah. the scenario, don't jump into it because everybody else is doing it. Yeah. But then you kind of thought through and still, you know, things happened which were beyond your control that's all right because you yeah. need to know what you can change and you need to accept the things you can't right yeah. that's the yeah. fundamental of it and also what i picked up here uh, is you communicate your stakeholders you know before you uh, you know take a jump uh, communicate this is what uh, the pros and cons are this is what i'm attempting so if your stakeholders are in loop then it's well understood it's a calculated uh, step and risk so you are not really jeopardizing your career by doing that as long and as you keep also bringing in a support system because right. you're saying we are in it to win this together i've kind of appraised you of all of this and yes. i'm willing to take opinions because it's a free flow kind of thing and if you're not comfortable with that tell me now not true. later very true because very true. we are in it together and we yeah. know there are circumstances beyond our control but yeah. this is something we think we absolutely have to be because that's going to be the future of the business yeah, if it absolutely. Is, it's a loss which is a smaller loss and then you also look at it as residual risk hey got it. that's got something it. you got to live with so you said support system i had this question in my mind i thought i'll ask later but now that it has come up i'll ask you now see nobody is self-made and nobody can claim that i've been successful just because of myself so uh, there's always uh, people whom we look up to there are people who 
come in the journey of our career as mentors or guides. Sometimes managers become mentors and so on and so forth. In your career, uh, which is beautiful trajectory of uh, growth in corporate world and now in entrepreneurship, in entrepreneurship, did you have some sort of people whom you looked up to or people who mentored you? Anything you would like to talk about as your support system? Yeah, I think this uh, word of like looking at a role model or a mentor, I think it's an overvalued term. Because mm-hmm. I believe in uh, kind of, it's like saying I'm looking for a soulmate, right? When you get mm-hmm. married, mm-hmm. because you kind of attribute all the things that you want in a person to one person and you're one. searching for that person. Mm-hmm. Very hard to find. If you like hiking, you can find somebody who can go on a hike with you. It doesn't have to be the person you're married to. Yeah. I'm just using that as an example or a yardstick. Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of hero worshipping or putting all the attributes into one person and then kind of getting disappointed when that person doesn't perform to your expectation, yeah. I think you're setting up yourself for failure. Yeah. So when you ask that, I'm flipping the question a little bit. Mm. I've looked at sources of inspiration from multiple people. They yeah. don't have to be necessarily senior to me. They could yeah. be somebody that's junior to me who does a role so perfectly and you actually learn from him or her. Hmm. It could be a person that brings your tea in the morning and she's a single mom that goes all the way, works hard and has put her uh, children in an engineering school. I know of this person who works in my office, for instance. Hmm. She's a great inspiration to me. When your chips are down, you say, if she can do it, why can't I do it? Hmm. Right? Hmm. So I think that in the corporate world, there are a lot of leaders you look up to for hmm. specific attributes, hmm. right? When you say Narayana Murti, you say humility. When you say Indra Nui, she's gone places where others haven't. Mm. So I think it's a lot of people that you look at as role models, but it's not all in one package. It's It cannot I, be. I, I completely agree with it. And likewise, I look for inspiration around me and role models in my everyday life. To mm. I would say every girl, her mom is a role model that she starts up with and grows mm. up with. And to me, the ultimate source of courage and uh, the ultimate source of somebody that showed me that no, there is no limits to your life was my mom. And for my dad for kind of pushing me even today and saying, what are you doing next? So mm. I think that ambition and life without uh, parameters was something that it was taught early. So I would kind of say that role models start at home. Mm. And then as you move on your journey of life, everywhere there would be that helping hand or somebody that kind of like says you can do it. Sometimes mm. it's all a work that takes to make that difference. And so, there are a lot of girls that come up and say, I'm going to give up my career because, you know, I've had a kid and this is the society pressure. I would say do it because you want to do it. It's all right to be a caregiver. It's good to be kind of a person that uh, you want to be a stay-at-home mom. That's a great thing to do. But that is something that you must want to do. Yeah, it should be your choice, Not yes. Something that you are doing it for others. Got if it. you ask for what is empowerment, it's the freedom to make your own choice. Mm. And mm. I believe whatever choice you make, that is something that needs to come from within. Mm. And I think that is the role model you see in every facet of life. Mm. And bottom line, when you look at it, it's harder for uh, a woman to kind of like say that I'm going to be in a career that gets me places. You, I travel, so, you know, I make role changes. 
it's not the same that the entire support system follows you. You need to be around where the support system is so that it gets easier for the support system to continue to support you. Mm. So I think it's not, it's more about being there and looking at not just taking, but also giving back. It's more about like when you take support, you also need to give back that support. Definitely, definitely. I think this is a, another aspect of success where it's not about just me, me, me. It's about uh, the environment as well. And if I'm yeah, just taking up, yeah. Believe um, that you are doing in this in a symbiotic relationship yeah. and not in kind of like I give and you take kind of a relationship. Yeah, no, and absolutely. Entire concept of paying it forward. Just like so many people inspired you. It is more about how you inspire the next generation of people to also, you know, make those choices. I think Mm. life, if you gave that moment, right, people say that it just takes a moment when you say I'm overwhelmed or I'm stressed. And then you do things that you didn't want to do. So it's about kind of a helping hand in those moments when you're conflicted or when you're stressed out or when you're overwhelmed, that's, you know, you look at, that inspirationary note to kind of say that here's a helping hand and walk along with me because we've all walked that path. So it's not what you're feeling is not something unusual. Got it. So I've had learnings from a lot of people. For instance, you know, the person that I work with now, the group CEO, great humility as a person and the way that he looks at everybody as a family, right? So that's a great inspiration I've taken. It's not that you're working with employees, but it's like a family of people working together for a common cause. Mm. So once you look at it as this is a family unit, then your perspective changes also internally. Because when you make money, you say it is to be distributed to everybody. When you say I'm in it, we are doing it as a family, right? And the notion, it's easier for Indians to get that concept. Because we don't look at people as individuals. We look at people as a family unit. Mm. So I was just reading something yesterday and they said that the greatest uh, learning from Indians was that even if there's one person in the family that's employed, then the entire family benefits from it. So it's not that anybody in the family is going to go hungry. That's when it's the, you know, the concept of collectivism versus individualism comes in. Yeah. Because it happens in all our families and we never would have thought of it, right? You look at this one employed person, nobody in the family goes hungry. Whereas yeah. in a lot of the other worlds, it's more about individualism Individual. and yeah. kind of looking at it. So yeah. I think that there's a lot of learning even on a corporate world from what we've grown up with. True, very it's true. more about collective wealth rather than individual wealth. So yeah, there's come- been a lot of inspirations along the way. No, def- definitely. So thanks for uh, you know giving some insights into your role models and where you uh, draw inspiration from. A couple of questions uh, that hit me. Uh, one question is about how are you paying forward? And uh, second would be about your biggest failure so far in your career. So let's start with how are you paying forward? What do you typically incline to? I know you have a very busy schedule as a, as a CEO, uh, but what's your intention and what are the typical things that you do to pay forward? quite a few areas that I'm very focused on in terms of even paying it forward. One thing I'm most, you know, focused on is using technology to better human lives. That is something that I'm very, very conscious of because I understand that the education I was given was a privilege. It's not something that's given to everybody. 
and therefore it is important to use the skills that you've learned for a cause so if that's you've got a learning which has been a privilege you paid forward example there are projects that we are working on now which is for visually challenged uh, people to enable them to read using artificial intelligence so that's a project that we are working on which is more to enable blind people to see and then there's digital classrooms so it's more about how technology can be used to impact human lives the reason is see not that one is better than the other but you have a lot of volunteers working in you know soup kitchens to a lot of other things which is a very noble thing yeah i also think that one of the other great areas where educated people must use is the privilege of the education you've been imparted how do you use your skills for a cause be it if you're a financial person looking at sources and uses of funds for ngos that is a talent that ngos don't have because they don't have the best of corporate skills they mm-hmm. have the the soul is theirs in terms of like wanting to do good Yeah. but the mechanisms of doing good comes from a lot of the industry veterans contributing to the cause i learned this actually you asked me inspiration accenture is a great program where they say partners can take 6 months off and go work on using their skills for a project in a area like if you go to africa and you're saying you're a supply chain specialist use your skills to kind of make sure that the last mile connectivity is made on you know the food food or relief work going to that person hmm. it's not necessarily that you're standing there and kind of like being at the last mile there but it's more about how you enable your skills to do that for a cause that is something i'm very very passionate about both nice. in the area of optimal use and sources of funds but also how technology can be used to impact human lives Fantastic. So those are my pet projects. Third is also on the gender and you know inclusion thing. Inclusion, Because yeah. What women lack, not just worldwide, it's a phenomena, but more so in countries. In the name of you know, women are glorified and uh, kind of a patriarchal society. The name of name of glorification pushes them back. because you're taught to be you know you are a caregiver you sacrifice a lot you need to play that role to the hilt so at the expense of doing something for a common good of the community at large so if you are a great you were great in academics you were great in a specific skill or a domain you need to use the domain a skill that you learned not only for making money but also for a common good So mm. I think the subsection of this inclusion is also about empathy and how do you kind of leverage that pool of resources for that cause. So I strongly believe in inclusion not just at the entry level but globally you have this revolving door syndrome where we lose women at the middle middle level yeah. and therefore they don't come up to the top and at the boardroom conversation level they're very minuscule and actually need a quota to be represented. when mm. they are 50% of the world there should be no quota ideally True. it should be optimally 50% naturally and mm. we still talking about inclusion at that level so i am very passionate about you know bringing women inspiring women to stay in the course giving them opportunities to come back to work if they need to take a break it's not just for man or woman if there is a need for you to be a caregiver in a family and you want to come back to work and in the interim you focus on certain skill developments or retraining 
those are things that i'm very passionate about rightly said Jay, and uh, i picked up something here see at, at times we look at the world and say oh world is not made for inclusion and diversity but these days more and more i think i said be it a man or women does that doesn't matter are you really prepared to be where you want to be are you like in the beginning of this conversation you talked about having awareness of the culture having awareness of the environment now if you want a seat uh, certain places are you aware of that environment mm-hmm. can you go there and make the environment seamless rather than people in the environment looking at you and say she just doesn't fit in yeah okay and looks like you have done it really well so i think this as thus this aspect i wanted to really highlight it is individuals responsibility to make sure you represent in a way you fit in rather than you make others raise eyebrows like oh how much i'll have to you know struggle to bring her in you know if that's the case then you are out anyway and then what's the use yeah. of talking about diversity and inclusion and all when you are not preparing yourself to fit in the environment and people people are people you know they want to do business with and work with and spend time with people who are like you so if I, you can't identify yourself in there is yeah. another component of it which i wouldn't kind of say make yourself fit in to a large extent because see the world of corporate has been created for a specific <laughs> mindset which is more the first people that went to work were men and only after the world war women went to work so your ideal ideal corporate person is not a male it is also it's more about how do you also change the environment to make them aware of where there are lapses in the inclusion agenda because different leadership styles are just as effective right so there could be an assertive style which is thought of as to be a leadership style but now the world is recognizing that an empathetic leadership style is just as or even more powerful than an assertive i think it's style. more powerful that's that's what it is coming out to be more yourself to fit in but learn more so that it's good for you in the first yeah. place Yeah. because learning is something of all different things in life is good for you and it just makes it easier to have a conversation but Perfect. at the same time from a corporate perspective just be aware that there are different leadership styles each of them just as effective yeah i think the awareness is key and that's where i wanted to point out like you are aware uh, aware of the environment so you don't make others uncomfortable you know if yeah. you make others uncomfortable it's not going to work now coming on to before enter into your uh, this current role of an entrepreneur where you built this uh, a digital business on risk management i had this in my mind to ask you what has been your biggest failure in your corporate world or in your life anything you want to share and how how it has shaped your uh, journey see lot of things when you say something is going to work and it doesn't it's always a failure and the biggest failures are the ones that you had first in your life because then you think it's the end of all things mm. but then when you look back it doesn't even look like a failure to you there are so for every deal you won there are five that you've lost so it's more about what you learn from each of them to kind of march ahead so i don't like to call it even a failure but they're life lessons mm. right mm. so i think it's a lot of lessons that we've learned because behind every person that looks successful to the outside world there are a lot of failures that he's learned to and it's more about falling up when quickly the next time around because you know it's going to be a scrap and it's going to heal in a few days mm-hmm. i think that's the biggest learning so if you talk about it 
I'll talk about challenges rather than failures. Yeah, right? I think that's a better word, yes. It's more in terms of like even the corporate world. I came from a well-defined corporate world where things were set for you. If you needed help, you know whom to ask. Yeah. If you didn't understand a particular methodology, you would say, you know what, I'm bringing on this deal. I need five experts in payments. I need a technology guru. I need ABC to bring to the deal team and I'm going and pursuing the deal and winning. Flip it aside. You're starting as an entrepreneur. You, your biggest challenge is to recruit the second person in the team. Mm. Because people are, you don't have even a product to show or what you're trying to do. All you have to see is like Martin Luther King say, I have a dream. Yes. It's a dream you have. And it's more like, you know, you're, you're recruiting people on the basis of a dream. And not only are you responsible for your career, you're responsible for the careers of people you're recruiting. Because you're saying, I have a dream. Here is my vision. Here is the articulation. Believe in my dream. Quit your well-paying jobs. And the, the support that your jobs are doing to your family and follow me. So the journey of an entrepreneur, I think the first year is the hardest. So it is a challenge and it's also the biggest way you can demolish your ego as a human being. Mm, interesting. So when you are, let's say, with you know, well-established company and you say, I want to recruit a thousand people, you know that's going to happen. You give a goal to an HR and recruitment team, you support the process, you know it's going to be happen, yeah. happening. Now you're an entrepreneur, there's no brand. Your brand is you. Because mm. people kind of quit their job because they think Jaya is going to do something interesting. Let mm. me follow her dream. Mm. And she has great thoughts and I believe in what she says. Mm. I don't know if um, you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, right? Yes, he I have. Yes. Person, and he's in a well-established company and he goes there and he says, I'm going to do something on my own. Will somebody join me? And there's just like one person that says, I believe in your dream. Yeah. So that is what is the equivalent of what you do in your real life. Mm. And it's complete surrender of your ego at the ultimate form, which is the greatest form of worship, right? In yeah. At least in Hindu mythology, you say your greatest worship comes from surrendering your own ego. Yeah. And that happens as an entrepreneur. So I think it's a great form of worship because you come from an established office, you have everything, all of your goals met, and then you go into a startup environment and you say, you think you know a lot, but you realize that you don't know 90% of what you need to learn. So and that is a humbling experience. So let's because try. When I came in, I knew the domain. I knew what were challenges in the domain. I could clearly articulate, you know, the banking industry does not have ABC products and they should have invested in it. We are importing a lot of products from the outside market. But we need to do an India for India and develop these products because it's a large consumer economy. That's a backbone. All of that, my vision is very clear. I think this is where I need to be. But then I realized I can draw a product map, but I don't know what's the technology to use to get that up to speed. Because by the time I've quit and launched the strategy, technology has changed. Yes. The marketplace is changing. Now, yeah. I go in front of an investor and say, I have like a 92% win ratio. I have the greatest product. I have like so many logos, which are marquee. The investor looks at me and say, oh, do you do on-prem? You know, now we only invest in SaaS products. Yeah. So it's again a humbling experience. You're back to the drawing board and saying, 
okay, I missed that. Let me kind of look at how do I do a cloud launch and kind of change the model. Mm. In that time, the SaaS is a bygone area and people are saying it's not SaaS now, but it's more rendering it as a service in a box. Right. So the models keep changing. Your responsibility to the people you've recruited keep changing. Your pressure on revenues continues because you have investors who invested that you've committed to numbers. It's like a Formula One race when the when the race, you know, the car races on and you have to change the tires. Right. You don't have stopping thing or the breathing power which you have in an established corporate. Six, eight seconds. Humbly, humbling experience and the most rewarding experience, therefore, when you come through it. You really look back at it with a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. So I think you covered it really well in terms of getting into entrepreneurship and the challenges of entrepreneurship. So let's properly transition in this before we end this conversation. You were, I guess, executive vice president at Standard Chartered Bank. And then I saw from there, you entered the world of entrepreneurship. So what what was the trigger? Why did you decide to start on? The trigger was actually a little bit on honestly personal because my son was in high school. And my next job after four years in a bank would have had to be in a different location. It would have to be outside India because there were no comparable roads in India to move into. So the question was, do I want to move outside when my son is just finishing high school or should I look at something else? So when the question of something else came up, then, you know, one is to also say, I'm going to leave the company and go to another corporate and do the same thing I've done all these years. Or take a leap of faith and say, I've learned a lot in my journey as, mm. you know, investment banker. So I understand deal dynamics well. I understand stakeholder relationship very well. I know how to get money and I know how to deploy money. So that's a skill I learned as an investment banker. Mm. From, from HCL, I learned about a lot of big deals, about technology, core of what it was. Through Accenture, it was management consulting skills and the ability to set up large scale businesses. Mm. And also the client connects both in India, outside India, the global perspective, all of that. And again, I came back to a bank and I learned what were things that bankers were struggling with. Mm. Which is banks said, you think they have it all, they have access to global products, but they still don't get what they want. The Mm. products pushed on to them but they don't get the product that truly meets their needs. Mm. So combination of this was to say, why don't I do that? Now I understand what bankers need. I know what the technology providers are providing. I also have the wherewithal of the wrapper to get both the use sources and uses of funds. So why don't we combine it all to create our own enterprise? So it was as logical as that. Mm, I see. I see. And how did you go about it? So did you start with looking for investors or you came up with a product idea in a PowerPoint and started to reach out to people? Or how did you go about the early days of your entrepreneurial kickoff or starting journey? I had a dream. You had a dream, of course. (laughs) It was more about about articulation of what the market was lacking. It Mm. was more about an articulation of what were gaps and a serious competitor analysis in terms of what were competition doing in that space, Mm. what were some white spaces, and your own time spent on looking at the gaps that are in the market, and then saying, here are things we can truly build. 
and looking at the market potential and not going to investors or to companies and saying, you know, invest in me as yeah, no. It was more about invest in this product because there is a need for this product and it's not provided by anybody else. So I think it is more about that conviction of what you have in building mm. and your track record of successful execution that matters to investors. So I think it was something of that sort and it was also matchmaking in terms of finding likely minds that were also looking at that gap, the Bhavan Cybertech group being one of that. Mm. Uh, they were looking at expanding their financial services practice either organically or inorganically. Mm. And it was just a meeting of minds. I see. I see. Okay, got it. So do you want to talk a little bit about the the product and the business that you run today? Yeah, we are uh, the leading worldwide provider of risk and compliance solutions for the globe. We started with the mission of saying make in India for India, which was a very strong statement eight months ago, eight years ago. It was not before the times of Atmanirbhar Bharat. And we said, you know, for instance, I started out my first product was uh, non-performing assets and about early warning signals to look at non-performing assets. So it started out with the innocuous paper which said what aids Indian banks. Mm. And it was launched and it caught, caught up quite a bit about the press. Yeah. To the extent that even RBI came up and said, hey, that's a great paper. Can we have a conversation with you guys? Yeah. So it started out with that paper which said, why should technology be looked at differently? What aids Indian banks? So it started out with a product in India, made in India for India. Only the little did we, I mean, we realized that we wanted to start with a niche market people weren't addressing mm -hmm. because non-performing assets come because of two reasons. One is ability to pay, which is universal. Willingness to pay, which is quite local based on cultural <laughs> one, yeah. which is more the loan scams and all of that stuff that was uh, going to happen. So I think that fitment of what you do culturally also is more science translated to a gut feel using either AI, big data, mm. predictive analytics. We saw that once you connect a risk management product to a compliance requirement, it's no longer local. It's a global need because almost all countries need a something that fits into that credit mapping or the new area you're looking at using disruptive technology, AI, etc. Kind of they would have a it may not be the exact reporting requirements, but something very close. And they're also having the same problem, which is global products made for a subspecific class. And then they say, customize the product for you. Whereas you use a business first technology agnostic solution is something everybody needs. So that propelled us to start in India, where we had a 92% win ratio, and then moved to different economies by kind of understanding local nuances and adaptation to that. So what we're doing in the risk and compliance space soon kind of like we had an additional line of business in terms of clean technology, because mm. what we are doing in terms of big data, artificial intelligence, reporting requirements is also common for clean technology. Mm. And therefore, the commonalities of what exists in terms of the technology infrastructure and how do you morph it across industry was our theme. And that's what we do. So what's RT360 I saw uh, on it's your risk profile? Transformation 360. I see, I see. And, and we like call it as the only risk and, you know, the compliance spend in the world that gives you payback as soon as you go live. That's a very mm, brave statement. Mm, 
Why? Because compliance is often looked at as a spend area, whereas you know you need to look at risk and compliance as a competitive advantage. It differentiates you from others rather than as a spend function. The and, minute you have a business impact in terms of something being returned to you in terms of dollars, suddenly becomes very interesting. I'll give that. I'll explain this statement with an example. For instance, we worked with one of the banks in India where asset size of $50 billion. NPA is at 10%, which is 5 billion at risk. Even just by putting a system in, and it let's say it brings down, just putting any system in, right? It brings down um, the non-performance by 1%. You return 500 million per bank per year. Yeah, it's amazing. Impact, and you're saying, you know, give me say even like $3 million for a product. It suddenly requires like it's a no brainer. No brainer. I'm giving yeah. 500 million uh, every year on it, and you're yeah. asking me to spend three million on it. It's a no brainer. Nothing. Yeah, got it. Are you so when you move out of India, every country, every geography has different uh, regulatory and risk and compliance needs. So does that? How does that? How does the our product work in every geography? Or you need to we, do customization. We do two things. One is we have domain experts in the local market with experience in the local market to kind of look at adaptation of the product to the local nuances. Mm -hmm. So when I say that, for example, the need for looking at big data sources is the same. The technology remains the same. Mm -hmm. The data sources are different. Certain data privacy regulations, for instance, in Europe, prevents the same consumption of data as it's in India. Mm. And Middle mm. East, you don't have data at all on a lot of those big data elements. Mm. So it's more about how do you kind of source the right elements for it mm. and mm. how to kind of look at uh, reporting requirements being changed. So right. you have domain experts with expertise in a specific market that you actually recruit and look at it from that perspective. Second mm. is great source of information is channel partners in the region. They've yes. been in the market and they've kind of worked in the market. They can tell you straight off the bat, what is the level of customization that's needed to make it work for the partner? So while you're new to the market, the channel partners aren't. So that's mm -hmm. the one that you leverage to go into that market. That makes sense. Makes. Are you in the ANZ market already or not yet? Not yet, but that's a market that we're looking to come into very right. soon this year. Fantastic. And I wish you best of luck. I think it's... Uh... Thank you. It's a small market, but there are big players, and I th I'm pretty sure you already know how how to go about it. So, a couple of uh, quick questions now in the in the end. So, I got to understand a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey as well. A few things more on on again looking at your career and kind of introspecting and looking at the first principles that have really worked uh, for you, which you could share with us which could be valuable for others to look into and when i say first principles you know somebody might say oh i wake up early every day you know that has helped or uh, i always looked at uh, you know finding a, a sponsor within an organization that worked or so on and so forth everybody has set of principles they have used what would be your top two or three first principles that have really worked for you i would say develop a very strong core competence in mm. any any area it could mm. be a domain it could be a technology. It could be like a core strength of saying, I innovate, I'm an entrepreneur, I think out of the box. There needs to be a core competency for which people come to you, right? Mm. And that's really, really important to have developed that in any area of your choice or something that you're naturally inclined towards. Mm. Second is 
keep learning because the only success that comes to you is from continuous learning and i often say this is the day you stop uh, learning is the day you stop living mm. so it could be something in your area it could be something that's outside your area so that mm. is something you need to continuously stop you know keep learning mm. third i believe is personally my in an area that i could kind of say that it worked for me was get out of your comfort zone the minute something gets too comfortable for you try to find something new because you're not learning anymore Mm. uh try to be uncomfortable in a sense of where it propels you to learn and do and last but not the least is take some time for you because i think prioritizing yourself is also important in all this uh, craziness of life whether it is you know anything that makes you happy music for instance singing makes me happy that is something that i actually invest time on learning new things mm. or it could be that you know i enjoy running so that's something that you focus on i think in all this time that we are giving to the corporate and personal world being a caretaker being a mom being whoever you are the more one of the important avatars of yourself is you so spend time on you know giving that attention to yourself too That's i think that was that was really touching for me and i completely in in sync with what you said finally i think we get too involved in everything and as a caretaker as father as mother as you know corporate leader and what not uh, we kind of lose ourselves and uh, yeah. sometimes we realize it's too late and sometimes we feel like you know we kind of become regretful in why did yeah. i not do certain things and i really liked what you do the singing and the running i know one for mind and heart another one is for body so it's uh, it's perfect jay i've asked you a lot of questions and you being a senior corporate leader and an entrepreneur you know the purpose of this whole conversation is to you know educate inspire and in, in an expanse across the globe is there any question i should have asked which is in your mind and i missed it which could be value for the listeners the answer of which could be value for the listeners I think you've asked a lot of questions and I've enjoyed having that conversation with you. I think that you know the personal growth that comes from a person is actually being a happy person because only when you're a happy person both and that means both physically and mentally fit mm-hmm. is when you can contribute the best to uh, paying it forward. Uh, so I think it's important from a perspective of paying it forward, paying attention to yourself and looking at the overall you know well-being of you and the people around you that's that's wonderful jaya now in terms of your connectedness two ways one is how do you like people to connect if they want to reach out to you and second how can people participate in on in your vision the journey you are in for example you want to expand in anz you know do you want somebody to reach out to what kind of people and so on and so forth so in terms of how you want to be connected if people want to reach out to you to you know get guidance or anything like that and second how do you want people to reach out to you if they want to participate in your vision in your journey great great questions so anc is a market that we are actively looking to address now because the compliance needs of what it was in india in terms of credit monitoring have become a regulation in north anc region so there is a lot of things that we want to do with the market especially on banking and financial services and uh, the best way to reach me is always on linkedin, LinkedIn. and uh, pretty much i respond to every mail and if not somebody from my team would always do That's so great. would love to interact on that media That's awesome. Thank you very much Jaya. Thank you for your time and sharing your wisdom. It was wonderful talking to you. Great talking to you as well.
and look forward to staying connected. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Empowering Indian Expats podcast with your host Ehsan Ali. I hope you learned something from Jaya's journey. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversations and collected heaps of nuggets. Um, her growth mindset, the way she looks at risk and reward, uh, her attitude towards building successful career without sacrificing family, uh, her personal value of giving back was other highlight. Uh, the way she talked about using technology and our professional skill to create an impact in people's life was something really stood out for me. Finally, I loved the way she talked about becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, she called it a humbling experience you know, after being at uh, senior leadership roles in corporate world. Uh, let me know what you picked up from the conversation. And uh, if you are someone at a career crossroad, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I would do my best to help. Else I'll connect you with someone who can assist you in your journey.